Hey, what up? It's Mark Carter. I'm the pastor of Fierce Church. Welcome to our podcast. I'm so pumped that you're able to join us today. I hope this encourages you, inspires you, strengthens you, gives you hope to keep pressing on. And it's my prayer that this sermon gives you a more expansive view of God's love for you. Enjoy the message. Welcome, everybody. As you're finding your seat, do me a favor, do one of these to somebody nearby and say, I know it's not always easy. I know, man, y'all need to learn to participate in church right away, okay? I know it's not always easy. Hey, I'm excited to jump with you again into this Understanding the Time series. And um, I want to remind you, we get, we get the gift of opening up God's Word. It is a present. It is a present to us from God. It is a present to us from the generations in the past that protected and some died for us to have. And we need to remember about the Word of God that it's a big book. There's a lot in there. And it, you know, it's not five pages. There's a lot. And there's a lot because sometimes we're looking at one thing one way, and then we need to look at it from a little different angle. The Word of God is like a faceted, multifaceted diamond. So we can be talking about one thing one weekend, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit differently a different weekend. So we talked about in the first weekend, hey man, we got to be careful nowadays to not say, so what you're saying is, and then kind of contradict whatever they just said. So what you're saying is, um, so what you're saying is, if you talked about social justice being really, really, really important to the heart of God two weeks ago, then what you're saying is, um, if you say anything else besides that, then suddenly it's not important to God. No, we're saying lots of things. The Bible's big. It has a lot of facets. And so today we're going to take a little bit different look at things related to social justice. And in particular, we're going to be talking about tribalism. Now, there's a lot of nuance to a lot of these conversations. That's why we're taking a long time to run through this series. The tragedy of tribalism is the natural result of a world that is drifting from God's word. I want to give you some definitions of tribalism just so we're on the, we're on the same page. We know what we're talking about here. Tribalism is attitudes and behaviors that amplify the feeling of differentness from what one recognizes as its own group. Let me give you a different definition. Tribalism is the idea that we should divide people into group identities, then assign them undesirable or evil traits to that group in such a way that we don't see the unique image bearers of God before us. That's tribalism. So in 2018, in the Washington Post, this article appeared, Why Can't Women Hate Men? And here is a little bit of what was written. This is just a small portion, but here's what was written. Here in the land of legislatively legitimated toxic masculinity, is it really so illogical to hate men? But we're not supposed to hate them because hashtag not all men. But when they have gone low for all of human history, maybe it's time for us to go all Thelma and Louise and Foxy Brown on their collective butts. Wow. I know it's kind of funny, but it's also kind of shocking that that was in the Washington Post. And like, it doesn't seem like that seems strange to anybody. In 1994, some of you have, you definitely heard about this. You've maybe seen the movie Rwanda. There was mass murder and slaughter between the Hutus and the Tutsis. And in some of the propaganda against Tutsis, this is what was said by Hutus, every, every Hutu should know that every Tutsi is dishonest in business. His only priority is the supremacy of his ethnic group. The experience of the, of 
the October War has taught us a lesson. The Hutus must be firm and vigilant against their common Tutsi enemy. Over a million people died in that slaughter. A million people. Now, if you contrast those two, art, those two letters, those two editorials, they're pretty doggone similar. You just replace Tutsi with men. And it's essentially calling for, hey man, like, we, we, we just got to forget about these guys. Let's get rid of them. Because they just can't be trusted as an entire group. In the New York Times, this article appeared, Can My Children Be Friends with White People? It says, Against our gauzy national hopes, I will teach my boys to have profound doubts that friendship with white people is possible. What's amazing is that you can assign that to an entire group of people. But you know what? It's really not so amazing. As we look at the Bible, as we look at God's word, the blueprint for this strategy, and that's what it is, it's a strategy, the blueprint for that strategy has been here the whole time. This is not new. This did not start in 1994. This did not start 100 years earlier. This did not even start when the Egyptians said, we better subjugate the Hebrews now because you never know what they're going to do. Let's just make them all slaves. Here's the problem, though, with tribalism, is it creates a generation that is chronically triggered, that is constantly in, in fear and vying for power, and who looks at other people made in God's image and just says, I can tell everything I need to know about you just by looking at you. I know everything in your heart. I know everything you have the propensity to do. And here's, here's the thing. If we don't, in the power of the gospel, oppose this ideology, and I don't mean in a militant way, I don't mean in a, in a violent way in any, any capacity, I mean starting within, if we don't oppose this ideology, it's just going to get worse and worse like it has throughout the centuries. You know, it's really hard to do. And I was going to show you on the big screen, but honestly, I just didn't feel comfortable putting Nazi propaganda in this church. Like, I just didn't, I just want to do it. Like, it would prove a point, but I didn't want to do it. So maybe some of your homeworkers, go Google Nazi propaganda and go see what is said and see how, is it much different than those articles I just pointed out? It's really not. And yet it's all, it, it's the same play, man. It's from the same playbook. It's the same scheme and strategy. Let's go to a scripture that I've talked about before, but I want to review in light of this idea of tribalism. Let's check it out. Ephesians 6, 11 through 12. Paul's telling this Ephesian church, he says, put on all God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies. Somebody say strategies. Strategies, strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Notice that he said in verse 12, the unseen world. It's, an unseen, it's a higher plane than you and I operate on typically. It's the unseen world. But he's also telling us, hey man, your enemies, your spiritual enemies, just be clear, they operate in stealth mode. They're not going to be super visible most of the time. They're operating behind the scenes. But that doesn't mean that they're not there. He called them mighty. He said, against mighty powers in the dark world. And this is important because Paul wants all of the Ephesian listeners and all the Christians in the future to understand 
These guys aren't cream puffs, okay? Don't think little red tights in a pitchfork, okay? That's, that's the wrong understanding. He says, I don't want you to be afraid of them, but I don't want you to be naive about them either. These guys are planning well. And he uses the word strategies in 2 Corinthians 2.11 to a different group of people, but talking about the same thing. Paul says, so that no advantage would be taking, taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. He's got strategies and schemes. Now, a strategy is, is how you're going to win, right? It, it, it's not just a plan. It's a plan to win. It's how and where and with what and how are you going to do that and over what period of time. That's a strategy. So it's, a, it's an elaborate, diligent plan of how exactly am I going to take down my enemies? There was a show, it might still be on there on Netflix a few years ago that I watched. It had Zac Efron in it, and he's playing Ted Bundy. Now, if you don't know about Ted Bundy, it's gruesome. Okay, Ted Bundy was a serial killer. He's, he's like, most horror movies, in my opinion, don't touch how bad Ted Bundy was, okay? Horribly slaughtered, and you don't even want to know to these young ladies, but they didn't really depict much of that in the show. And I you know, heard interviews with Ted Bundy and kind of before his execution, how all that went down. And, but what was it, was it? It wasn't like interesting and helpful interesting, just like surprising interesting. The elaborate plans that Ted Bundy had to play act, to lure these young ladies into a place where he could do them Harm. They were elaborate plans. They required a lot of trickery, a lot of long-term planning. And Ted Bundy is not a devil. He's not that high of a being. He doesn't have that long-term of a vantage point of how humans work. What I'm saying is the enemies that we are up against every day are more malevolent and smarter. They're never wise, just to be clear. The, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. They're never wise, but they're intelligent, and they've got long-term plans. And so what, what we all do often is we'll underestimate that. We'll look at like what happens in the earth and be like, oh, there's, there, oh that's, that's bad or whatever. But we're not really thinking anymore. There could be a really shrewd enemy behind bad things happening around me. Behind not even just random little things, but big picture things. 50-year plan type of things. And you know, in, in centuries past, we're probably overcompensating now because in centuries past, you know, we didn't know much about science. We didn't know much about medicine. So anytime like anything went wrong, somebody got sick. We're like, oh, I guess that was the devil. You know, and they died. And now we know oh, that was hygiene, actually. Like that wasn't the devil. But we swung the other way. And so now we don't even consider the possibility. Actually, we should, we should look under the microscope a little bit here because you can see the fingerprints of the enemy's long-term plans in things like tribalism. He's got long-term plans, long-term strategies. That's how he works. And we're not thinking that it's going to be this long. We're not thinking that there's really somebody who can sustain malevolence for that long. And yet, he can. And our job, as Paul would go on in Ephesians 6 to tell us there, is put on the armor of God. And in particular, the belt of truth. The belt of truth. That's God's word. That's the present. That's the multifaceted present. He says, I want you to make sure you hold on to this. So here's what I want to encourage you with today. Theological truth is the antidote to the world's tribalism. Theological truth is, what does 
true about God and his creatures? How does it really go here, okay? We've got theories of reality. God says, I will tell you actually how reality is. So as we study God's word, we pull, up, pull out theological truth claims of how reality actually is. And God says, if you'll hold on to how I say reality actually is, you won't be swayed, you won't be tricked, you won't be flim-flammed, you won't have the wool pulled over your eyes by the currents in the culture, what's going on around you. Let me say it a different way. To make it out of the dark, you got to hold on to the rope. To make it out of the dark, you got to hold on to the rope. When I was probably about 14, my family and I, we went to the Bahamas, and we went to, you know, kind of like a little... Uh, you know, out in the sticks kind of an island, if there can be such a thing. It wasn't like a big island. It wasn't like Nassau. It wasn't big and touristy, okay? It was a little bit, um, you know, there wasn't as much build up. There wasn't, there wasn't as much there. It was cool because it was, you know, relaxing and stuff, but there wasn't big city things. And, and there was this cave. And so there wasn't like any health department checking out this cave. It was just, hey, touristy kind of thing. I guess if you can find it, go in the cave and see it. But it might be dangerous. Like, we don't know. Good luck. You know, that, that's kind of how it, that was the kind of event that it was. And in this cave, you, you know, you go 20, 30 feet in and dude, you can't see nothing. Okay. So if you don't have a flashlight, you're a little bit in trouble. And, and what there is on the ground, there's just this little, little kind of like twine string rope. It's not even like a full rope, but it's, you know, it's just, it's, Hey, if, if you lose your flashlight or whatever, just hold on to this rope and keep feeling your way out of here. If you hold on to the rope, you're not going to trip over anything on the ground. You're not going to like break your leg, hopefully. But nobody's going to check anyway, so hold on to the rope. You know what I'm saying? See if you can get out. Well, as our world around us in this time right now gets darker and darker and gets more tribal and gets more divisive and divided, God says, hold on to the rope. Just hang on. Because the satanic strategies and schemes that are against the whole world, you are susceptible to if you don't hang on to the rope and you'll find your way through. So the author of tribalism is the enemy. The author of tribalism is the enemy. Here's a truth that we need to do some battle with in our hands. This is the weapon. The enemy knows that division weakens us. He knows that anybody would, would know this. Just think about this, okay? Jesus, Abraham Lincoln quoted Jesus when he said this, but here's what Jesus said. He says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. Now, Jesus was actually talking about Satan when he said that. Because people were blaming Jesus. They were like, man, look, at you, you're just casting out devils by the devil. Like, the devil's helping you get rid of the devil. And then Jesus is like, what are you, a moron? He didn't say it that, but that's the Carter V translation, okay? What are you, a moron? The devil doesn't work like that, okay? The devil is smart enough to know that if he kicks his own self out, he loses, he can't be, you know, against himself. And the devil knows that about us. If they're always fighting, if they're always bickering, if I can just get them to turn in on one another, they're easy to blow down. There's no strength there. It's obvious. It's a super simple, obvious strategy. It's in his best interest to stir up hate in different groups toward one another. Now, here's a secret weapon that the enemy has that we underconsider sometimes. The enemy will uh, seek to tempt you and I personally. He will. But he also knows that sometimes it's a whole lot easier to create some kind of social pressure. 
because we're super susceptible to some social pressures that we wouldn't be to on our own. Okay, so you know this, when you were a kid, man, or if you were part of any like school group or sports team or whatever, there's a real power in peer pressure. And it can be very good, but once it starts to go bad, things that you wouldn't be talked into, you can get talked into because the group is doing it. It's like, well, come on, come on, come on, just do it, just do it. Some of the dumbest things I've ever done in my life, now I got to own most of them, but some of them were because of the idiots I was with, okay? (laughs) I wouldn't have had that dumb of an idea, but they wanted to do it and I wanted them to like me. And so I went along with it because them liking me was more important than whatever I thought I was risking. And the enemy knows if I can just shape the culture, if I can take the entire environment, the social environment that people are in and get them to start thinking that bad things are good and good things are bad, even if they still know those bad things are good and those good things are bad, I can still talk them into it. I can still rope them into it. And once you get enough people angry in a room, even if there's some people trying to keep their heads, if you just get them angry enough, there's a tipping point where they're just going to start rioting. They're just going to lose their cool. Because that's how people work. So the enemy's always trying to shape culture. He's trying to get at us, not personally just tempting you, but to change the environments that we're in so it's just easier to do. And this pattern has actually been there from the very beginning. We're going to see it in God's word. Since the beginning, there's been the, we're going to call it the dominant culture. This is the culture that snuffs out the true and free worship of God. Let's take a look just at the Egyptians, when they held Israel slaves. And what did God tell Moses? He says, go get my people and bring them out. Somebody say out. Bring them out so they can worship me. They can't worship me there. They're stifled. They can't do it. Bring them out so they can be free. So they don't have to bow down to the cultural gods of the Egyptians. And in every culture, every culture, there's gods. There's gods of the day. There's prosperity. There's affluence. There's prominence. There's being famous on YouTube. There's having enough of the things. There's having the perfect relation. These are cultural gods. You do you, a cultural God. And the culture says, bow down to it or you'll regret it. And God says, come out. Come out from them. This actually happened even with Solomon. Solomon's father, David, had finally, by the grace of God, ushered in a truly free kingdom. And things were going so well. And then Solomon, his son, came in and looked around and said, you know what, I kind of like these other cultural gods, though. And things got tight. And then he starts conscripting his own people. He starts using them in the same way the Egyptians used them. And so you can see this cultural scheme, this this cultural play that the enemy's trying to do. Then the Israelites, they find themselves in Babylon. And what do they have again? They have the Babylonian gods. Nebuchadnezzar says, you're going to bow down to that statue or we're going to throw you in the furnace because that's what the dominant culture does and it's what the dominant culture does today. Now, there's been times in in history when a version of the church was the dominant culture. It was doing evil or at least stifling, sometimes in God's name. But then there's always people God raises up. There's a remnant that raises up and says, no, let's come out. Let's come out. Let's come out and be free so we can be free to worship the Lord our God. Even the early church under the tyranny of Rome. 
for the first couple centuries, they were under the tyranny of Rome. They're, they're waiting. Oh, we, we can't wait to come out from under this boot. And my friends, the point is the pattern is the very same way right now. There's always going to be, there's the dominant culture, and then there's the alternative called out culture. You and I are supposed to be not only personally, but within the culture. If you're a Christ follower, you are the alternative called out culture. Sometimes we talk about it as the world and the kingdom, but I just want to change how we talk about it for a minute. It's the dominant culture. It's the Egypt. It's the Babylon. It's the Rome. It is the current dominant culture. So I don't want to talk about right and left because really both right and left have idols. And both of them are the dominant culture. So if we're going to think, you know, according to God's word, when you say, okay, well, what's the alternative called out Christian culture? And how do we do, it? do that? Because that is the call. Now, in the dominant culture, according to James chapter 3, he even tells us, this is, this is how you can tell, this is what it looks like. All right? It is earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic, it's vile, it's full of disorder, it's full of bitter jealousy. It can't even stand to tell the truth for very long. It's merciless. It's full of selfish ambition. You can tell that's, that is the kingdom of darkness. That is the dominant culture. It reacts like that. He says, here's what y'all are called to. You're called to do good and be good, to receive your sustenance from above, not from below, to be peaceable and gentle, to be full of goodness and mercy and sincere and impartial. And, and as we get the, the medicine of Jesus that's beginning to take over us, and we're now beginning to like, oh, I'm rejecting the dominant culture. And I'm starting like I'm having these, these conflicts because I'm pulled in one direction. Part of my flesh wants to go the dominant way, and, and the other part of me wants to go to the called out version and do these things that are from above. And that's supposed to start in us, and then it works to our home, and then it ideally works into the church, and it works into the very nation. But right now, we're at a certain stage in the scheme in the strategy, in the plan of the enemy. And there's nothing we can do about it. We are here. God has chosen you and I to be here in this particular time in history. We can't just choose for it to be different because it's not different. It's been this way before and worse, but it's this way now, and it's not going away anytime soon. So we need to know that the author of tribalism is the enemy, and Christians embrace tribalism out of ignorance of their identity in Christ. Out of ignorance of their identity in Christ. Here's the alternative called out culture reality. We're all the problem. The world will say, that group's the problem. It's the Hutus. It's the Tutsis. It's the Hebrews. It's the Romans. God's word says, it's all y'all. You're all the problem. The problem is you because you are in Adam. 1 Corinthians 15 this is a really important theological grounding verse. Okay, I want you to hear this. The world doesn't know this. Okay, we're telling secrets in here today. The world doesn't know this. For since it was, 1 Corinthians 15, for since it was through a man that death came into the world, it is also through a man, that's Jesus, that the resurrection of the dead has come. Just as because of their union of nature in Adam, all people die. So also by virtue of their union of nature shall all in Christ be made alive. So he starts with Adam. He says, Adam was the federal head of mankind. 
And because Adam sinned, as the leader, so to speak, you know this in your family, sometimes when a family member sins, they're so prominent or whatever that that sin hits other people and hurts other people. Well, Adam and Eve were so prominent that their sin just, boom, washed all over the entire humankind. That's why you and I are born with the propensity to sin. That's why you and I, it doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be. It just means we can't get away from wanting to do evil or what the Lord calls evil, even if we don't call it evil. We can't get it out of our blood. It's there. We can't really offer God any real covering for ourselves. We are uncovered before him. Now, just to make sure that we're all on the same page, what this means, okay? I want to give you just several verses in a row. They're not going to be on the screen. I just want to tell them to you. Ephesians 2, 1 says, You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. John 8, 34, Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Isaiah 64, 6, All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, Natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Ephesians 2, 3, We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And in Adam, which is where all of us begin, yeah, that's where you get stuff like the KKK. That's where you get the Aryan nation. That's where you get every other group of people that says, we can hate these people together. Let's get together and hate. That's all as a result of of really, what's the group behind all those groups? It's the group of being in Adam. That's the group. Everyone in in Adam is a slave to sin. Everyone in Adam will hate because it is what really, in a sense, they are. They have that in common with all the hate groups of the world. Now, here's another strategy. It's another scheme, and, and I want you to see it up close. Blaming takes our eyes off of us. Blaming takes our eyes off of us. What did Adam and Eve do? First thing that they did. The first thing, Adam, what happened? It was a girl. She did it. Woman, what happened? It was a snake. Now, here's what's trippy. They were correct. It was them who they blamed, but it was also them. It was the snake. It was the woman, but it was also them. Yeah, Eve, but you took the bite. Yeah, Adam, but you were there, and you were first, and you were the leader, and you did nothing while she dove into what you knew was forbidden. There's always blaming, and and on and on it goes, and then we get down to Cain and Abel, and what does Cain do? He looks at Abel, and he says, you're why I have all this suffering, because you are religion shaming me. Abel, you are religion shaming me. All my problems... All my difficulties are because of what you are doing. So I'm just going to kill you. And that's what he does. Do we see, my friends, that blaming started in the garden and has not stopped? And it's a wonderful blanket for looking at, for, to keep us from looking at ourselves. It's not that those other people didn't do stuff. It's just that the longer I can blame them and point to them and say, that's where the problems come from. It's those Jews. That's where the problems come from. That's who it is. It's those white supremacists. That's who the problem comes from. It's, it's those Hutus or those Tutsis. It's even from those real criminals. That's who the problem comes from. Well, I don't know about how all that shakes out, but I do know that if all you ever do is look for the plank in somebody else's eye, you will never see the speck in your own. You'll never see it. And that's been the plan. That's been the plan. That has been the plan since day two 
I think it was day two, it might have been day 20, but whenever, whenever they started, decided to blame, that's when it started. So I know, yeah, life's hard. It's, it's not just the invader's fault. It's not the parasite's fault. It's not the cockroach's fault. It's because we are in Adam. That's where, that's where the problem started. It's, we're in Adam. And God tried to warn us, says, you doing evil will result in horrible consequences for you and all of humankind. And it still does. Your and my evil still hits other people. Okay, while we're blaming whoever we're blaming, our evil is still hitting other people. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God that there's an antidote. Because here's, see, you're like, well, Carter, I ain't in no hate groups. I hear you. And those hate groups, they have idols of themselves that they pit against everybody else. But here's something that you and I do have. We've got idols of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is what we do to cover ourselves, to feel better about ourselves. Self-righteousness is to say, well, I'm really into the environment, so therefore I don't have to feel guilty about my sin that is actually there no matter what I do. I'm really into helping the poor, so I don't have to feel bad. And if y'all would just do what I'm doing, you'd be, you'd be righteous like me. And what that really is, let's just, let's just be clear, that's us stitching together little fig leaves to try to cover ourselves. But do you remember the fig leaves didn't work? God, God came to Adam and Eve, and he said, yeah, that just doesn't do it. That doesn't cover you. What you did wrong, that doesn't cover it. And what did God do? Do you remember? He took animal skins, which means... Animals had to die. There had to be a sacrifice in order to cover what they'd done wrong. So can you imagine it there? You see a little Bambi rolling up. There she is, all pretty. And God says, I'm going to need that. Takes the skin. Falls all muscle, bone. That's gross. You know what else was gross? The crucifixion was gross. And God says, I'm going to need that. I'm going to need to cover these people because their self-righteousness won't do it. It won't cover it. It, it takes God to cover our in-Adamhood. Here's another idol that we have, right or left. It's stuff. Here's what we do in America. We build up money for the sake of having more money. We don't ask the question, I wonder why I've been given all this money. Why do I even have this? What does God want me to, I'm going to die soon. What does God want me to do with this? Do I really just have it so I can have a mountain in my backyard of gold? Is that what this is about? And yet that's a cultural idol of ours. There's solitude. This is where we underlook at the suffering around us. We're like, hey man, look, I'm good, okay? If those people are in trouble, it's because they did it to themselves or somebody else did it. But look, I, I did the smart thing, so I'm going to be here and I'm going to be fine. And what is that? That's the idol of solitude. That's the idol of, I'm good on my own. I don't need anybody else while people are languishing. And God says, actually, you're your brother's keeper. And actually, for you to do nothing when you have the power to do good is itself evil. Yeah, big ones. How about this one? 84% of Americans believe, this this is from uh, the Barna Group, David Kinnaman. 84% of Americans believe that enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. 84%. Enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. Listen to this one, it's even worse. 86% believe that to enjoy yourself, you must pursue the things you desire most. Okay, so almost 90% of Americans think this is about me and engineering things, so it's about me. 
that is a cultural idol. That is a God that God says, come out. Come out from that and worship me. Uh, a few nights ago, probably a couple weeks ago, Kenzie and I were, hey, two waters, nice. Um, Kenzie and I got, I got the rare chance to be home alone. All the kids went to Fierce Teens, and we watched this movie called Four Good Days. I don't know if you heard about this. It's probably a little bit under the radar. And it stars Glenn Close and Mila Kunis. And she is a really, in a bad way, heroin addict. Okay, she's the daughter. She comes home to her mom. And she's been on heroin on and off for like, you know, she started in her late teens. She's now in her 30s. She's had a couple kids, but her life is a wreck. She can't move forward at all. She has no teeth anymore. Like she's, she's a wreck. And the, the conflict is a little bit like, how are they going to get along? Are they going to put this thing back together? Will the mom give her another chance? And it comes out throughout the movie, and I won't give away how it ends, but she becomes aware of this drug called naltrexone. And what this does is, if they take it monthly, you can't get high off heroin. So you, you take the drug, and now you can't get high off the drug that you want, which gives you time to put life back in order. You, could, you just don't, you're not jonesing for it, so now you can actually start to have a real life. Well, as we're watching this, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, the world in Adam is high. It's high on all of its gods. It's high on all of its idols. It's high on all of its love for self and solitude and self-righteousness. And Jesus comes along, and he is the naltrexone. He says, I'm going to give you some Jesus. And suddenly, you're going to have less and less of a taste for those things. The more Jesus is overtaking us, the more it's like, I don't, I don't want that. I don't want that anymore. I like this. I like Jesus. Now, here's the thing about Jesus, though. He's a real cure. We, we begin to, to sober up when we come to Christ. But here's, here's where it goes wrong a little bit. When we really encounter Jesus, Jesus, his love will save us just as we are. You're like, I love you. I, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to save you. That's why I came. But because he's the real antidote, he must start with the truth. And this is the truth, especially our generation doesn't want to hear. The truth is, I love you. I died on the cross for you. I want you. If nobody else wants you, I want you. I will be with you. If no one else will be with you, I want you. But you got to start. You are guilty. I don't condemn you, but I'm informing you. You are guilty before God, and you're going to stand in front of God. And you've, you've got to sober up, or this thing doesn't work. You've got to sober up. That's why I really believe we have so many people falling away or having, you know, just kind of deconversions, is because they started their faith walk emotionally, and they didn't start at the basement. They didn't start with, I'm a sinner. I'm in Adam. I am doomed without Christ. See, unless, unless that's how you're thinking about Christ, if you didn't start within the basement of like, woe is me, I am a man or a woman of unclean lips in an unclean generation, if you don't get that you actually are all those things that the Bible said, then my friends, you're still on heroin, so to speak. You're still on the drug of this world. You're not in your right mind. You're thinking things that are not true about you. You're precious and, dude, you're worth the cross, but you have no good to give to Jesus to offer him. All you have is your heart. Say, Jesus, save me. 
See, then you're sober. And then he's like, oh, we can work with this now. Now that you know you will always need me, now that you're actually grateful for me and not just thinking I'm some kind of like, I don't know, buddy in your life to be a genie and bless you with stardust from time to time, now that you know that, we can actually walk together. And you can every day of your life know, I am a forgiven sinner. You know how awesome it is to be a forgiven sinner? Because see, when you come to Christ, you're not just a sinner. Now you're a forgiven sinner. Dude, that is better than any drug the planet has. I'm a forgiven sinner. That means that no matter what I did, no matter what I do, nobody can condemn me. Who can ever be against me if God is for me? Dude, I'm going to heaven, yo. Like my worst, you know, my worst day here on earth, that's the worst it'll ever be. Because all I'm doing is going up from there. I'm going to heaven with Jesus. Somebody said, that's good news. news. Yeah, it is good news. So being in Christ is the antidote to being in Adam. And here's where, so good, man. How many many think the peace of Jesus is worth just about anything to get it? Come on, man, it just is. I mean, you look at the way the world's tearing itself apart. How would you just like peace? She's like, man, I don't like that, and I really wish everyone would get along, but it sucks, and, and... and at the same time, like, I got peace with God, and I'm not here much longer. Like, my, I'm about to get beamed up soon, and it's going to happen sooner than I think. You know what I'm saying? And, it's, and, and really, like, it's, it's my problem in a sense right now because I have a responsibility to do good toward it, but it's not my problem long term because it's, the schemes of the devil are going to keep going, and then I'm going to beam up and be out of here, and it's really God's problem. It's not my problem. That's incredibly freeing. Remember, nuance. So, we're almost there. Here, here's here, here's what, here's what we got, here, we're, we're working down to it. Here, here, here we go. Being in Christ counts all other allegiances as comparatively worthless. Here's where we're going to get into your business a little bit. This might be the part where you get offended. Okay? If you haven't been offended, you probably have already. But if you haven't yet, it's coming. Okay? I'll be a prophet to you. It's coming. Okay? You're about to get offended. Okay? <laughs> probably. Being in Christ counts all other allegiances as comparatively worthless. All other groups all over things, everything you say, well, that's, that's kind of, I'm like part of them. You probably are, and that's probably wonderful. But all we're saying is, if we're going to walk in this, in this antidote here, if we're going to hold on to the rope, if we're going to think about reality the way that God thinks about reality, we're going to say being in Christ counts all other allegiances as comparatively worthless. Listen to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, dude, he's like, he's the dope jam of religious people, Okay. He gets all the awards. If there were Emmys for like being the best religious person, Paul gets it every year, okay? Every year he gets it. He's, he's, he's from the right stock. He's obeyed enough. Listen to what he says. He, he's trying to tell people that they're, they've, they've got the wrong resume, essentially. He's saying, verse 4, Philippians 3, I could, of course, put my trust in such things. If anyone thinks they can trust in external ceremonies, I have more reason to feel that way. I was circumcised when I was a week old. I'm an Israelite by birth of the tribe of Benjamin, a pure-blooded Hebrew. As far as keeping the Jewish law is concerned, I was a Pharisee. And I was so zealous that I persecuted the church. As far as a person can be righteous by obeying the commands of the law, I was without fault. He's like, y'all don't have anybody on me. I was the tippy top of the class every time. But all those things that I might count as profit, I now reckon as loss for Christ's sake. Not only those things, I reckon everything. Somebody say everything. Everything Everything as complete loss. For the sake of what is so much more valuable, the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've thrown away everything. He had a lot to throw away. He had a lot of, a lot of groups he could put himself in. He had a lot of places where like, man, aren't I cool for being a part of this? 
For his sake, I've thrown everything away. I considered all mere refuse. And that refuse is a nice word. It's actually dung. So that I may gain Christ. Paul is a Hebrew of Hebrews. But notice what happens when he stops being in Adam. When we come to Christ, we get into Christ. Okay? Where our, our, blood, our, our spiritual bloodline changes. I was under the curse of all humanity. And then, boom, I'm under the blessing of the new Adam. I'm under the blessing of Christ. And Paul says, when I did that, I, my mission didn't become like, hey, man, Hebrews, let's, let's have some, let's, let, me, let me take care of the Hebrews. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reconcile you guys with the Romans here. That's my job. Because Hebrews are real important to me, and, and we all just need to get some more, you know, Jewish ceremony. Like, he didn't do any of that. He said, I need to take hold of Christ. Christ is the new way. Christ is the new group I'm in. And all those other groups I was in, hey, man, Great. If, if there's some way that God can use that for his kingdom, do it. Let's do it. If there's some justice we can bring in any of those groups, do it. Let's do it. But in terms of my allegiance, I'm not in Adam anymore. I'm in Christ. And my allegiance is to Christ and to all who are in Christ. So what we're saying is, let me say it a different way. If you've got a banner over your life, okay, no matter how great it is, okay, maybe it is you've got a banner over your life that says, yo, I'm pro-gun, or I'm pro-feminist, or I'm pro, you fill in the blank, whatever your group thing is, whatever you're like, this is the thing. Hey man, that's a good thing, but I've just got to tell you, if you're in Christ, that doesn't belong on the banner anymore. That doesn't belong on the banner. What belongs on the banner is for Christ and his alternative kingdom. That's what belongs on the banner. For Christ and his alternative kingdom. That is your one allegiance for the rest of forever. That's it. You died to all other allegiances. You left them. You counted them like Paul. I count them as dung that I may gain Christ. That thing is a false God. That thing is a false. It's not necessarily that I'm worshiping it, but if I do worship it, if I make it the thing, God says, you got your priorities wrong. You're not in Adam. You're in Christ. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little hard to hear, but it's true. So, let me say it a little bit different way. Okay, now you're, you're not going to like this. The most appropriate labels for us to put on differences is no longer Tutsi and Hutu. It's no longer black and white. It's no longer this kind of person and that kind of person, this kind of group and that kind of group. The only appropriate label, or the, I should say the most appropriate label for you if you're a Christian is in Adam and in Christ. Your home team is in Christ now. That's it. Everything else, what does it do? Boom, it bends its knee to Jesus Christ. That's what it does. It falls quick. It says, yes, Lord. It says, Lord, if you can use this label, if you can use this group I'm part of, do it. But I'm not choosing the group over choosing my God and those who are in my God. How can light have fellowship with darkness? How can I partner with people that don't even know my God and think they're going to really be going after the same things in the same ways? I'll do what I can and we'll walk as far as we can, but my allegiance is to Jesus Christ. He's the one that rescued me out of here. He's the one who is beaming me up. I don't know if y'all can handle this. I don't know if you can handle this. This, this sheer of a, fierce of a message. Listen, 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If you walk in the light, if you walk in Christ, you have fellowship with every other human in Christ. Not even just here, but in heaven. Okay? That's where you have fellowship with. That means even people in your own family, your own actual blood, you are more distant from if they're not in Christ than people across the world or dead for 500 years. 
Yeah. Well, I told you, the rope, we need the rope, so we're just going to tell the truth in here, okay? Yeah. And with regard to those groups that hurt you or hurt people you knew about or loved or were somehow related to you, what is the right response? In the culture of the alternative kingdom, the right response is, I don't like that. I don't rejoice in injustice. It makes me sick to my stomach to think about some of the things that have, done, that have been done in this country, especially in the name of Christ. It makes me want to puke. It makes me so angry. It makes me, like, you know, when I'm, like, not in the spirit, it makes me want to go back in time and grab some people and, like, do bad things to them, okay? Because of what they perpetrated on humankind. It's really not good in my heart. I hate it. But you know what? That's not my way now because I'm in Christ. That's in Adam. In Christ is, I am not the judge. I am not the judge. And the truth is, I mean, check this out. Maybe this will help somebody. All those people that did that, here's what I've got to know and I've got to remember. Dude, if they weren't in Christ, they're in greater torment right now than I could ever do to them or any human court could ever do to them. Dude, hell is real. Hell is God's actual response to evil. And that's, that's why the world is so like uptight and, and offended right now because they don't know. They think they have to bring justice. They don't think there is a final arbitrator of justice. You know what I, I, I don't love, but I love, I'm, just, I'm shooting straight with you. I don't love it, but there's something to me that says, thank God, when I think about slave traders in hell. Like, I also rejoice when I hear about ones that got saved. I do. I'm like, praise God for that. That's the power of the cross. But there's also something in my internal justice that says, yeah, well, they ought to be. But here's the truth. Here's the Bible truth. They ought to be. So should I. That's the Bible truth. So should I. So I got, I don't really have any stones to throw. What can I do now? What can you and I do now? Here's what we can do. We can do just what the, the Israelites in Egypt did. We can do just what the Israelites in Babylon did. We can do just what the Christians in Rome did. We can worship and we can prophesy. We can say, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm stuck here in Babylon right now, man. I'm stuck here on earth. I'm stuck here in Egypt. But I'm going to worship because I know where I'm going. I'm going to worship because this isn't all. I'm going to worship because there's a God of justice. I'm going to worship because I'm not smart enough to fix all this, but there is a God who is, and he is going to do it. I'm going to worship ahead of time for what is coming. And I'm going to prophesy to this dead and dying and angry land. I'm going to say, there is a heaven, and it's for you. There's a heaven. There's a God who can fix your entire reality, and he wants you. And he doesn't want you to get the punishment for your sin. He already took it all for you. So my friends, whatever we do, however we're going to in react, with regard to the tribalism we see forming around us, first, our allegiance is to Christ and to those in Christ first and foremost. And we're going to do this. We're going to say, this is otherworldly. I forgive that. I forgive it. In Jesus' name, I forgive it. And I'm going to worship because my God is so powerful and good. And I'm going to prophesy, this is not all there is. 
It doesn't end with humans figuring out how to do justice. There is a judge of all the earth and he is just. And he invites everybody to get out of the punishment and come to him in heaven. So that's our rope. Let's grab the rope. Let's keep walking in this season, in our generation. Hang on to the rope. Let's pray. Hmm. Lord, I pray for this, this word. I pray that you would cleanse. I pray that it would do what it does. God, I pray that you would use it to scour our souls. Lord, I pray that we would see things from your perspective. I pray amidst all the pain that we ourselves are in, that we would do the kingdom play, the kingdom scheme, the alternative culture move. And we will forgive and we will worship and we will prophesy of the age to come. In Christ's name. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. If you don't have a home church and you're looking for a Bible preaching community that has its heart set on passionately knowing Jesus and being his witness in our generation, check out Fierce.Church. We'd love for you to join us either digitally or in person. Also, if you're looking for leadership development related content, don't forget to check out the Fierce Leadership Podcast available wherever you get your podcast from. Special thanks to those of you who give generously to support this ministry. It's because of you that this is possible. You can click on the link in the description to give now or visit fierce.church for more information. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not subscribe, share it with your friends, click on the share button, take a screenshot, and share it on social media or wherever you would share such things. Whatever challenges you're facing, I know you can make it. Don't give up. Hang on to Jesus. He won't let go of you. Jesus loves you so much, and we love you. I hope someday we get to meet in person. Thanks again for listening.